And now, two pigeons bemoaning the fact you can stream DirecTV satellite-free. You see this? A family watching baseball on DirecTV with no satellite dish in sight. Let's heckle them. You call that changing the channel? Choke up on the remote, buddy. I hope getting all these games on DirecTV makes up for your mother not pre-chewing your sunflower seeds. DirecTV has the most MLB games. Visit DirecTV.com. Claim based on total games offered on national and regional sports networks with choice package or higher. Availability of RSNs varies by zip code and package. High-speed internet service required. Terms and restrictions apply. Welcome to the Total Soccer Show and another round of listener questions. On today's show, we're learning about MLS's next big homegrown players, the winners and losers of the expanded 48-team World Cup, and we imagine ourselves in Squid Game, which doesn't sound fun for us, but hopefully fun for you, listener. My name's Ryan Bailey. Joining me today is a man who might not have been expected to be introduced first on the podcast. We'll see if he's ready to talk. Joe Lowry, go! I was ready as soon as you said might not be expecting to be introduced first. I was about to bend over to pick up my glass of water to take a sip, thinking, oh, I've got some time. And then, Ryan, I snapped back up upright in my chair. I'm ready for you. Keeping you on your toes, bud. That's what I'm here for, right? Man, you really did. I like that. You should do that more often. (laughs) I was thinking, by the way, Joe, about your lovely state of Arizona, which I love very much. Do you have a lot of golf courses? I'm wondering if you could lure Gareth Bale over state borders and so you could see how lovely Scottsdale is and maybe play a few holes. Yeah, I mean, Scottsdale feels like the place for Gareth Bale out of all the cities in, in Arizona. We have tons of golf here. Arizona is a really big golf course state. It, it really is outside of the, the months where if you're outside, you want to die. A beautiful state to go out and just enjoy being outside. I kind of talked about this the other day, to go enjoy being outside. And, and a lot of folks out here like to golf. I'm not one of them. But Gareth, if you're looking to uh, to get a little break from California, I don't know exactly why you would need that. California kind of has everything that Arizona has, but it's not like death outside for six months of the year. Either way, if you're looking for uh, some really good Mexican food, no, California has that too. I got nothing. If there's one place less economically viable to have uh, acres of grass for golf than California, then it's Arizona. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, There we go. Uh, Also joining us, Joe, is a man who's making us record early today so he can watch Andy Murray play tennis. It's Graham Ruthven. Hello. Accurate. Pretty much. Yes, exactly. I mean, I... I have uh, I've delayed a lot of life events to watch Andy Murray. True story, my wife's waters broke while we were watching Andy Murray at Wimbledon and we waited until the end of the Andy Murray match to go oh. to the hospital. Did it go 100% five? True. Did it go five, Graham? Uh, no, it was... Do you remember Serena Williams and Andy Murray played doubles, mixed doubles once, one year? Oh. So it was only best of three, thankfully. But okay. The uh, hospital, to be fair, the hospital told us there was no rush, but... Yeah. Uh, that they didn't really have a say in the matter either yeah, way. Did your I wife think that, watch. Grim? <laughs> she did. Thankfully, she is a big Andy Murray fan as wow. well. So. She's like, yeah, I'm in labour, but I understand. Let's finish this one. Is that basically how the conversation went? Indeed, yeah, some, something a bit <laughs> like that. Uh, I, I do picture her just being totally unfazed. Like, yeah, yeah, it's fine, it's fine. I want to see what happens in this set and not really caring until it was over. Is that about how it went down? Yeah, pr- pretty much, yeah. I mean, we were slightly distracted for the final set, I have to say. Um, the impending birth of our first child and only child to date was is, is a bit of a distraction. It has been a distraction for the last three years, if I have to be honest, from my Andy Murray uh, tennis-watching habits. But there you go. Well, uh, listener, as you hear this, you'll likely know how Andy Murray fared against John Isner, uh, his opponent today. Big fan of a former politician who throws his dinner against the wall and tries to assault Secret Service agents while they're driving. Anyway, also here is a man who thankfully hasn't invested his savings in John Terry's ape kid football club NFTs. Hopefully not Taylor Rockwell. Uh, I have not, and I'm just enjoying every single one of those stories about things that are collapsing. I hope that the players who tried to sell us on that scam also lost a ton of money. I suspect that they didn't, but they just made a ton of money by people who believe them. Uh, But yes, I enjoyed that story, which I think I enjoyed The Athletic having to update their coverage from it's lost 91% of its value to 99% of its value. That was fun. That's, yeah, jo- jo- Joey Durso in The Athletic uh, updating his story. As you say, Taylor, the NFTs that John Terry was um, shilling, uh, they lost 90% in value when he first reported, 99% now. I'm sure he had no glee whatsoever in reporting those updates, Taylor. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's, it's up there in terms of the ridiculous things that I kept 
kind of assuming that I was just old and in the way and didn't quite understand these things and that suddenly everything would be paid for by like a, a gif of Alf, but that doesn't seem to have become the case. A gif of Alf? Oh, I'd like one of those. Can you do an Alf I, impression, Taylor? Only $5,000, and then it's yours, Ryan. That's my NFT sale for you. <laughs> mm, I'll give you just right-click, save as, and that's also yours. Graham, don't give it away. <laughs> All right. Graham gets it for 4000 for uh, finding a way around. Good stuff, Graham. <laughs> I've always thought about writing a sitcom about Alf and what happened after the Alf TV show finished, like what he what he did next. I did he ever eat the cat in the garage? On that topic, yeah. Anyway, Xbox, Xbox, probably that. Yeah. Okay. Let's get to listen to questions then. Thanks for yes ending me there, Big T. Uh, Luke Milidou asks, "Why is the MLS All Star Game on a Wednesday? If it were on a weekend, I would go." Says Luke, but I can't take a day off. It seems like bagged scheduling. This is a very good question from Luke here, guys. Uh, the 2022 edition of the MLS All Star Game is on Wednesday, August 10th in Minnesota. Yeah. Uh, what, that was a terrible accent. I'm sorry. Uh, once again, wow. <laughs> it's the MLS All Stars oh. against the league. <laughs> Lika Emeki's All-Stars, goodness me. Uh, The 23 edition, by the way, is in Washington, D.C. The format is not announced for that one yet. But I wonder, I wonder if the 2023 expanded League Cups, which is a month-long tournament, might also have some uh, action to play in the scheduling there as well. Um, Joe, I'll come to you first. Why is this big game on a Wednesday and not a weekend? We know, after all, the Champions League final saw the error of its ways and put the game on a Saturday after many years of having it midweek. Yeah, with MLS, it seems to me, and I think the rest of us from from what we said a little bit before we started recording, is that MLS just doesn't want to sacrifice a full weekend of games for just the All-Star game. It's a little bit of a difficult situation. There's pretty much a full slate of games on Saturday, August 6th, and then again on Saturday, August 13th. They're trying to get as many games in as possible, especially this year, where they have a hard deadline of you need to be done with your season by the time the World Cup comes around. That was always the plan for this year for Major League Soccer. But even in the past, there's this focus on not giving up a weekend to play games by moving the All-Star game to a weekend. And that's, that's a bit of... A challenge for MLS, I suppose, because All-Star is limited when you put it on a weekday. And this is kind of what Luke is getting to. People won't travel to go. People might not even watch. They, they have other things going on in that weekly routine. If you're just kind of shoehorning it into the middle of a week, it's not going to do most likely these crazy numbers. And I think by and large, All-Star hasn't really done that. It doesn't It doesn't produce exponential, exponentially greater viewership for MLS over any sort of long time frame. It really is kind of just this fun still relatively small in the grand scheme of sports all-star games event that MLS puts on. And, and to be honest, guys, and, and you're welcome to disagree with me on this, I really don't think that's a bad thing. I think it can be it can be boring and, and less fun for people like Luke and, and other folks who might want to go and really enjoy the day. But I think MLS opens itself up to just this world of criticism if they change their season or if they move anything in the middle of the season especially to accommodate having an all-star weekend. And I think that just makes everything about MLS – well, not not everything about MLS. Maybe that's a bit strong. But I think it can make it easier for folks to poke fun at MLS and really to discredit them as a legitimate competition – because, oh, well, they're, they're willing to move everything around just for this All-Star game, which pretty much no other league in the world outside of Liga MX now participates in. And that just feels like a can of worm that MLS does not need to open and maybe shouldn't open, at least in the near future. Yeah, I agree with everything you, you've just said there, Joe. The other, the other thing that I thought of when trying to answer this question was the nature of what the All-Star game is like as a sort of week-long MLS conference as well. There's a lot of lanyards at the MLS All-Star game. Yes, fans do go to the game, but there are a whole lot of events in the days before the game that are really meant for media and sponsors and commercial partners. And so I guess it makes sense to have those sort of things during the week for these people who almost treat the All-Star game as a work commitment, essentially, rather than having it on the weekend when it might be harder for these people to to get to the game. And yes, maybe that's a bad look in terms of it's easier scheduling for commercial partners than fans, but that's kind of the purpose of the All-Star game. It's it's an exhibition and a showcase for MLS rather than a competitive game itself. So if you're moving one or or the other, if you're moving a whole card of competitive games or the All-Star games to midweek, I very much am in favour of moving the All-Star game. Taylor, your thoughts, would you rather um, drink Heineken with the Cooligans while listening to a non-nationally famous DJ on the weekend or a weekday? 
That feels like a weekday type of thing to me. Uh, if you're swilling Heineken while listening to a non-nationally famous DJ, yeah, Wednesday night, why not? <laughs> it is strange to have been to a couple of those events midweek because they're still trying to hype them as though it's this big extravaganza. And yet when it is a Wednesday and everybody's got to get home for work or for like the kids or whatever, it doesn't quite have that level of spectacle around it that maybe they're looking for. I think, yeah, I think I agree with everything everyone said there. And it, they're probably giving it the credence it deserves. What I'll ask, though, Joe, I don't know much about the NBA and its all-star, for example. Do they make a weekend of that? Is that on, is that like separate from the season? How, do, how does it compare? I honestly don't, I don't remember. I've seen plenty of NBA all-star games. It's kind of lost its shine for me over the years. But I don't think the NBA is a fair comparison here with MLS because the NBA plays games like every day, right? So it's it's a much more active schedule I suppose in MLS I think the NFL might be a better comparison and the way that they do it playing games every every weekend you know the way they do it is after the playoffs are underway they'll they'll put it right before the Super Bowl if I'm remembering correctly so they put it on a weekend the NFL does but they also put it much later in the season I honestly wouldn't be opposed to MLS doing something like that after most of the teams have dropped out and you just have the teams that make it to MLS Cup. You know, They have all-stars, but those players don't actually travel or, or participate in that game. They're just all-stars in name. They don't actually involve themselves in the festivities. That could be a decent way to do it, but at the same time, I don't know if folks want to add another weekend to the playoff schedule. So it, it, it is complicated, and I don't expect we'll see MLS change much, at least again in the near future. Joe, I have a one quick question for you. Would you like to see them go back to what they initially did with the East versus West, yeah, which is a thing yes. that everybody, every other league does? And to me, uh, this is a long preamble before I get your answer, which you've already answered. But uh, it, it feels sort of like because of the structure of it, whether it's like MLS playing a, a big European club or a, a middle tier European club, uh, as is usually the case, this time it's a little bit different. But it always feels strange because it sort of is like MLS has to compete. It seems like there's this idea that MLS should win and that shows that we're moving forward. Whereas other all-star games, it's just sort of like you're getting these rivalries, you're getting people kind of playing against each other, but not taking it that seriously, not doing a ton of defense. And, and that makes it more of an open thing. I feel like the Pro Bowl and the NFL is like that too. MLS is just, it just seems a little bit odd. Maybe it will be different this year with like league versus league sort of thing. Yeah, I mean, it was that way last year as well. Let's not forget. I, I just don't think if people are using all-star games as a measuring stick of a league's quality, it is like, I don't even know what to say. It, 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 I know people do that, but I just cannot think of a worse way to go about comparing one league to another or MLS to Chelsea, however many years ago that was. I mean, it just doesn't, there's no logic behind that at all. But I would love, Taylor, for entertainment purposes, for MLS to just lean into an intra-league game. I like the the MLS versus League and Mekis All-Stars. I think it's fun, and it's certainly a big upgrade over we're going to play Atletico Madrid's B team on a random Wednesday. Like, that, that just doesn't move the needle for me. But League and Mekis is a, is a nice middle ground, and I think occasionally sprinkling and maybe alternating between that and East versus West would be a really actually much more fun way to do it than it's been for the last, you know, five, six, seven years now, however long it's been. All right, Luke, thank you very much for that question. We'll move on to Garen Green, who asks, who do you think are the winners and the losers of a 48-country World Cup? And a follow-up from Garen, do you think there'll be a clause where there can only be one country from a confederation in a group? He says there'll be 16 UEFA spots and 16 groups, good Lord, meaning that every group might have a UEFA team. Do you think this could actually strengthen UEFA if uh, they weren't allowed to face any other fellow UEFA team. So one UEFA team per group. And yeah, just to confirm there, the current format for 2026 is 16 groups of three teams. There's going to be three extra spots for UEFA, four and a half more for CAF, which is almost doubled their tally from five uh, in in, pre in the coming World Cup. Uh, three and a half more spots for CONCACAF, half a spot more for OFC, Aww. and two more for Condobol as well. I'm going to say straight out the bat here, Big T, that the losers... Are the fans here? Um, because no, the, loser, the losers are us. Imagine doing yeah. the, that tournament preview. Sixteen <laughs> groups. Are you kidding me? On <laughs> it's going to be a long podcast. That one, Greg. We'll look forward. We'll build up. We've got a few years to build up to that one. Um, but I, I, I'm going to say, yeah, the, the losers is us who like soccer because qualification is going to have less peril. Um, the group stages. They're going to be less interesting. I'll suggest maybe less competitive. You're going to have some integrity issues there. The loser might be the concept of integrity because with three teams in a group, the last games can't be played simultaneously. There's some uh, possibility for shenanigans there as well. Taylor, I I've gone yeah. negative and gone with the losers. Uh, so... Uh Feel free to carry on with that or suggest some winners. I will, uh, because I do think, and this is more of a like, 
a statement of, in my mind, reality, like a, a cautionary uh, warning. Basically, I think this tournament is going to be really dull. I think 2026 is going to be a dull World Cup. I think it will be better with the expo- expanded format afterwards. But I think for this one, because it's going to be so different, and for the reasons you've already laid out, Ryan, you're going to have potential dead rubber games. You're going to have games where both teams are maybe okay with the draw so that they go through. I think you're going to end up getting a lot of defensive soccer where teams are holding on to try to get that draw, try to counter and get that goal and then sit deep. And I don't think it's really going to lend itself to expansive, fun attacking soccer. I think it's going to be a lot of defending and a lot of trying to kind of snake a result here and then make it to that knockout round because you've got two of the three teams in each group advancing. So I I think it's going to lend itself towards that style. So my loser would be teams that can't break down a bunker. Uh, and my winners would be uh, basically teams that have an identifiable approach or style or a long-serving manager where you sort of have a ton of instruction there. They know how to play together. There's a lot of chemistry. I think those teams, I think of like a Costa Rica team that historically has made runs at the World Cup. I think they will be just fine in this setting because I think they can frustrate and grind their way and then spring a surprise and on they go. I think I, I actually started answering this question before reading the second part of it. And I say that just to say that my original answer was the winners are the UEFA nations, in my mind. They don't get as many expanded places at the World Cup, but they already have the most of any federation. But I think it does mean they're going to get more games against weaker opposition. I think that means there's more likelihood for UEFA teams to advance to the knockout round. And I think of the expanded Women's World Cup in 2019. And when they expanded, you had teams that hadn't been there previously. And that led to results like USA 13, Thailand nil. I don't know if you're going to get any of those quite so bad, but I think you're going to have nations that haven't been there before that are smaller, that don't have the infrastructure structure or budgeting to allow them to be as competitive going up against teams that are much stronger that have more stability and I think you'll see some pretty lopsided results here and there and then a lot of nil nils and one nils uh, on top of that Graham your thoughts on this one by the way Graham uh, you just made me think 16 groups that's going to be groups A through P group P goodness me wow (laughs) (laughs) okay sorry sorry, can I interject really quickly I I don't understand why FIFA chose this particular format for the 48 teams. I'm not a I'm honestly not a huge fan of the move to 48 teams either way, but but it's happening, so it doesn't really matter much what I think at this point. But why not go for the four team groups and just do 12 of them and have 12 teams so the winners yeah. of each group go or, or you can either do the, just the winners and then the four best second-place teams, or you can do the top 24 teams, which is, I'm sure, what FIFA will end up doing if they ever do change the format for this 48-team World Cup. You go and you do the top two teams from every group to get you to 24, and then you do the eight best third-place teams, and you still have the classic four-team group. We've done this three-team group thing before, and I don't recall it. Go- well, okay, I don't recall anything about it. But from what I've read, I don't think it went all that well. And it, I don't know. It just doesn't make sense to me. But anyway, sorry, Graham. Go ahead. No, I, I, I agree with everything you said, Joe. The, the format is strange to me. I'm not against an expanded World Cup per se in terms of the, the competition itself. I have concerns. One of the losers for me was, uh, from a hosting perspective, countries that aren't America, England, Germany, France, France, and possibly Spain, because those are pretty much the only nations that can handle hosting a tournament this big. So I have concerns over the, the hosting side of things. And I have concerns over over the format as well. But I'm not necessarily against an expanded World Cup to the point where if the format was cleaner with a a 64-team tournament, I would almost be in favour of going even bigger if it would make it a a better format. So I agree entirely, Joe. I think that the format is slightly strange. But the winners for me are uh, New Zealand because at the moment... The winners of the Oceania qualification process go into the inter- intercontinental playoff, but the new format, as, I, as I've read, will see the winners automatically entered into the World Cup, and that is going to be New Zealand every single time. So they are pretty much guaranteed of a place at the World Cup every uh, every tournament from 2026. Um, my daughter's preschool is closed, so she is now sitting on my lap as I answer this question, so apologies <laughs> for that. Uh, but, uh, Joe, I think I the one thing I'll say with how they formatted it is because they wanted to have as few games as possible while still expanding it because they couldn't let the tournament go on for like an extra month or have 40 extra games. So I think that's why they ended up having to do that. But I agree with you. It still seems sort of cart before the horse. Well, we have to have 48 teams and now we'll figure out a solution. Oh, we can't have as many games. Well, now we've got to have a different solution. And they sort of ended up on this 
format. And so maybe that will end up changing if it doesn't work out. But I guess we'll find out in 2026. We will indeed. Graham, potential winner in Scotland might actually qualify for this one. I mean, we'll find a way not to. Yeah, I can, You can count on that. That's true. <laughs> All right. Uh, and, and for the other part of Garen's question there about, do you think there'll be a clause where only one country can be from a federation in a particular group? I'm not sure how that works across all confederations, but what about, Graham, 16 UEFA spots and 16 groups that sort of are essentially seeding Europe throughout mm. the tournament? That sounds a bit odd to me, but they have to do something like that, I suppose. Yeah, I, if I think about this logically, I think it would help UEFA nations top their group, but because uh, at the moment, obviously, there can only be two UEFA teams in any one group. And obviously, there are uh, two round of 16 places from each group. Although now I think about that. What's the format again? <laughs> so 16, 16 groups of three teams. The top two from each group go through to a 32-team knockout. Is my math right there? I think yep. it is. Yes. yes. So it's two two from three, right? I'm right. And yeah. that's still going to be the case. Yeah. So I'm, I'm correct in, in my logic here. So if the, if the UEFA teams were truly the strongest in the group, they would both go through... In the, in the current format of having two UEFA or two teams from the, the single con, uh, confederation in the group. But obviously, if there's only one UEFA team in each group and we're working on the pre- premise that UEFA teams are the strongest, then then first place would be easier to secure. But I, I'm not entirely sure that there's any barrier to that in the, in the current format for UEFA teams to go through ahead of other confederations. All right. Thank you, Garen, for the question. Good job, FIFA, with this whole thing. Sounds great. We'll be back very shortly after these messages. This episode is brought to you by Michelob Ultra, the official beer sponsor of the NBA. Want to get closer to the game than ever before? Michelob Ultra Courtside is giving fans the chance to win exclusive NBA prizes and experiences like official gear, courtside seats to an NBA game, and more. Head over to MichelobUltra.com courtside to learn more. Looking for an assist with your credit card but can't get a hold of anyone? Luckily, with 24-7, U.S.-based live customer service from Discover, everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day or night. Yep, you heard that right. You can talk to a real human and customer service at any time. Sounds like a real game changer if you ask us. Make the right call and get the service you deserve with Discover. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. Total Soccer Show, welcome back to our listener questions. John Huffstetler has got in touch and said, what teams should we look back on with higher regard? Because although they got knocked out by the eventual champs of the competition, they were good enough to have made a tawny final. Uh, Great question from John Graham. I think my mind immediately goes to uh, teams who have been knocked out by Real Madrid in the Champions League. Uh, Because the best team often doesn't win the Champions League. And let's look at case in point of this particular most recent Champions League. Man City and Liverpool, probably both better than Real Madrid, both knocked out by Real Madrid. So there's my starting point. Yeah, I I think I still look at Manchester City though so I look at the the bit of the question that says that we should look back on with higher regard and I still think a lot of people will look at Manchester City while I take your point there as arguably the best team in Europe over Real Madrid so I kind of went back and thought which teams maybe didn't get the credit that they deserved at the time and for me you said Real Madrid there um, as as the culprits for knocking out better teams. I actually looked to a Real Madrid team from about 10 years ago, Jose Mourinho's Real Madrid. So people do remember them as good, but because they were up against Pep's Barcelona, I'm not sure people remember just how good they were. So they were knocked out of the Champions League at the semi-final stage um, in 2011. And they went to the camp now against a team now considered by many to be the best in in history. And they got a 1-1 draw. And they actually played pretty well in the home leg as well. But Messi had one of those Messi games. He had one of the the games of his life. He scored that famous dribble and and finish, which is arguably the best goal he's, he's ever scored. And without Messi being Messi, I think Real Madrid have a really good chance of making that Champions League final. And they probably win it because for me, they were stronger than Manchester United that season, the team that Barcelona actually faced in that final. And then the following season, Real Madrid beat Barcelona to the Spanish title with 100 points, a record 100 points. They win 32 of 38 matches. And when people talk about Mourinho and his great teams, they talk about Porto and his first Chelsea team and his Inter team. But honestly, I I believe that his his Real Madrid team, this Real Madrid team at their peak, may have been his best in terms of the, 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 the strength of that side. 
And then from the Real Madrid perspective, they, this team doesn't get spoken about as, as greats because, well, they didn't win a Champions League and Real Madrid are defined by their success in Europe. And then Ancelotti and Zidane come along immediately after Mourinho leaves and they, and they won Champions League titles for fun. So even though I think Mourinho's Real Madrid were sensational, they don't really get spoken about as one of the great Real Madrid teams when I think if you look at the, the level they reach, they deserve to be up there. Joe, any thoughts on this one? So, Ryan, you and I had very similar ideas initially about how to go about this, which is exactly in opposition to Graham, at least in some ways. So the first entrant on my list was Manchester City from this past year. With just how much we talked about Pep and Pep overthinking it and Pep blowing it, that is still maybe his best Manchester City team ever, and they were so, so good and were incredibly unlucky and and did collapse, to be totally fair, to Real Madrid. Um, Real Madrid put on pressure and, and City collapsed under that pressure, but still... They were absolutely good enough, per John's question, to make the Champions League final that year. So they were first on my list. Bayern Munich, who lost to Liverpool in 2019. Uh, I don't know how many folks out there remember that. It was it was pre-pandemic and chaotic because now it seems like it was eight years ago because of that very reason. But they lost to Liverpool in 2019, 3-1 on aggregate. And then Liverpool goes on to play Tottenham in the final and then they win the Champions League. That was an incredibly good Bayern Munich team that dominated the Bundesliga. Matt Hummels in the back, Thiago in, in midfield as well. Both of those players were in and started in that game, or at least in, in one of those games against Liverpool. And they were, I went in to look at some of the stats because I have to be on brand, and by expected goals difference per 90 minutes, Bayern were the best team in Europe's top five leagues that year in league play, which I think is not really all that surprising when you look at some of the names on that team. So Bayern from 2019 is one. And then Bayern as well in, in 2017-18. And this goes back to the Real Madrid theorem, Ryan, that you posited. I guess it's your second Real Madrid theorem after the Tony Kroos one. But they lost to Real Madrid in the semifinals of the Champions League in 2017-18 as well. And were, again, very dominant that year, certainly in the Bundesliga. And they were one of the better teams in Europe that year. Certainly better on, on paper and on the spreadsheets than Real Madrid. So those are my two, I guess, three answers in terms of the Champions League. Technically, these next answers don't count because these teams did make it to the World Cup final, uh, which is against the premise of John's question, but I went for it anyway. Hungary in 1954 in the World Cup, so in, in 1953, one year earlier, uh, a Pushkas-led Hungary team became the first team outside of the UK, the British Isles, and Ireland to beat England. And then uh, a year later, they beat Oh, no, excuse me. I think it was a couple of months later. Either way, they beat England again 7-1 in Hungary, and they make it all the way to the World Cup final. They're favorites in 1954, and they collapse against West Germany after taking a 2-0 lead. They lose 3-2. They didn't lift the trophy, but they were historically good and, and really legendary for a whole bunch of different reasons. And then the Netherlands in 1974-1978, they had Cruyff in that, that 74 final. They lost to Germany in the final, and then they lost again in the final to Argentina at the next World Cup. So technically, those ones don't count. But I, I'm not sure those teams are remembered quite the same way, or, or I think they would have been remembered a little bit differently if they'd actually lifted those trophies. Joe, when you talk about 1950s Hungary, is that how it feels when we talk about like 1990s teams to you? It feels a little <laughs> little distant for me, I'm afraid. Yeah, it's it's exactly the same. It's exactly the same. <laughs> Bless you, Joe. Uh, Tater, I think the answer to this, if we're going to look at international teams, is there was a team... Um, that made it to the semi-finals of the 1990 World Cup that got knocked out on penalties. Same team made it to the semi-finals of Euro 96, got knocked out on penalties. Uh, same team made it to the final of Euro 2020, got knocked out on penalties. That team could have and should have won all of those tournaments, Taylor. And yet it never came home. And yet it never came home, Ryan Bailey. I'm so sorry. And it never will. And it never will. Uh, I did not have England on my list. Would Would you, like, if you were putting one England team that didn't win, either that lost to the eventual champions or just got knocked out for whatever reason, Ryan, what is the team that you really think of as being the one that should have won it? 1990. Yeah. Totally 90. Um, absolutely should have. Bobby Robson's team absolutely should have won, uh, should have got past West Germany in the semi and a relatively weak Argentina in the final. I stand by it. It's the biggest travesty of my, my lifetime that Sir Bobby didn't win a World Cup. You, but Ryan, do you not think in terms of individual quality, the 2004 and 2006 teams were so much stronger than they must have made it to your 2004 quarterfinal? That was Portugal both times, yeah. wasn't it? Yeah. Portugal knocked them out. Yeah. And that felt like, I know they didn't really ever produce the performances, but in terms of individual talent, I reckon I could go through that 2006 team from back to front. So actually Cole, Ferdinand, Terry, Gary Neville, midfield, uh, like Lampard, Gerrard, Beckham, Joe Cole, Michael Owen, that Wayne Rooney... That's an incredible team that really should have achieved more. Add it to the list, G. Add it to the list. 
Yep, agreed. Yeah. Should have won everything, Graham. Should have won everything. Hargraves and Carrick uh, in there, too, I think. That was a solid, solid squad. Unfortunately, <sighs> uh, Portugal good at housery and good at winning things. So there you go. The other team for 2006 that I had on my list that I think is worth mentioning is that France team uh, that we all remember for losing the final. It's the Z- Zidane red card, and and that's kind of how that gets remembered, and then it's Cannavaro hosting the, uh, hoisting the trophy. But looking back on that team... It's kind of ridiculous. It's Claude Makalele and Patrick Vieira as your two central midfielders. I don't know how you get through that. It's an attack that has Henri, Zidane, and Ribéry. Uh, Not bad. It's, uh, I think Turam and Galas are, are your two center backs. There's, there's crazy old Bartes in between the sticks, making it very, very fun. But then along the way, they knocked out a ton of very, very good teams. I think they eliminated Spain and then Brazil. Then there's one more very good team, Portugal. They knocked out that Portugal team, and then they end up losing to Italy. So I think that France team is one that stands out, and I guess I'm just going to be uh, a lover of all things France because I was I would add we talked about this last week but the France team that uh, lost to the United States in the 2019 Women's World Cup was so strong and so stacked and I think if they were on the other side of the bracket that would have been France uh, versus the United States in the final uh, but they end up losing the quarterfinal to the U.S. team that goes on to win the whole thing but that was the U.S.'s most difficult game they were really pushed to it at times it felt like maybe this is the one they end up dropping and that it's the U.S. team that ultimately wins their uh like their second one back to back uh means that it's a really really good team to lose to and i think that ends up being this sort of negative thing that it's a team that uh, uninspired and unimpressed but really when you go up against one of the best teams ever i think that makes it kind of hard to see them as anything but uh unfortunate in their draw good picks gents good picks thank you john for the question we move on to steve hidalgo who has asked who are the next big homegrown players in major league soccer who should I direct this question at? Can I, can I ask a question? I actually have a question for <laughs> Joe that goes off of it. Joe, like, what, what was your approach to this? Because I think you could get so in the weeds on this one that, like, there are names that I think belong, but I wonder if they are already too mainstream, even sure. for you. Yeah, okay, I did have that sort of internal uh-huh. struggle, Taylor, to not know exactly where to draw the line. I think I included a few of of both, sort of in that list. Players and names that I think people will have heard of, that I think Graham even being on the opposite side of the ocean, but still following U.S. soccer and American soccer and MLS will have heard of. And also some, some names that maybe folks haven't heard of, or at least that maybe some folks here haven't heard of. I don't know. But I'll, I'll run through my list, and then if anybody else has any, any contributions, I would love to hear them. My first one is one that I, I'm not sure many folks will know yet. It's Cruz Medina. Um, so, so again, yeah, not, not much of a response there. Cruz Medina, 15-year-old San Jose Earthquakes player. He's a really highly rated midfielder, smooth, good on the ball. He's skilled with both feet. He's playing some for the Earthquakes 2 in MLS Next Pro, which is a third division league now. We talked about that on a listener question show a while back. He's really young. He's the youngest player of anybody that I have on this short list. But he is, I, I think, con- generally considered the best player in his age group in the United States right now. And, and so San Jose signed him to a homegrown deal relatively recently. There were questions about whether he would sign for San Jose or maybe try to go and, and play somewhere else. But either way, he's played some for various youth national teams and is a very highly rated player. Now some players that I think folks will know before I bookend it with one other player that maybe is a little less familiar. Obed Vargas and Caleb Wiley, I think, are both young MLS guys who, have stood out, who haven't stood out this year in a negative way, which is something you always say, Taylor, about how, how we think about young players. I think they have generally been able to hang in MLS, and Vargas is currently dealing with a back injury. Otherwise, he would be with the USU 20s in, uh, in, their, in their CONCACAF tournament that they're going in right now. But he's done well, relatively well, filling in for Jao Paulo in Seattle's midfield, which is a big job. But he comes off the bench in the CCL final and has been a, a pretty regular player for them up until that injury. So that's Vargas. And, and Wiley is a left back for Atlanta, who have just the worst luck this year with injury. Brooks Lennon goes down in warm-ups uh, before a game against Toronto. And so now they're, they're really deep. They're having to dig deep in the depth chart at both fullback spots. But Wiley is over on the left. He's, uh, he's, he's a big kid. He's pretty athletic. He's 17 years old. And uh, he's maybe not 
fully developed technically yet, but but physically, I think he's really promising and is pretty comfortable in a, in a couple of different vertical channels over on that, on that left side. Paxton Aronson is a name that I think a lot of folks will know because of his brother, Brendan Aronson. 18, he's with the Union, creative, energetic, more creative, I think, in a, in a classic sense in Aronson, than, than Brendan Aronson is. He's fun to watch. He's with the USU-20s, as is Jack McGlynn, another 18-year-old with the Union. Uh, very talented, not athletic really at all. He's kind of the classic regista, and I don't know if there's a place for that in the modern game. I hope there is because he's a ton of fun to watch. And the last American name that I want to toss out is, is maybe one that folks haven't heard as much. Brooklyn Reigns, who's kind of similar to, to McGlynn in that he's a good passer. He doesn't have a ton of mobility, but he reads the game well from deep in midfield. 17 years old. He played at the Barca Residency Academy in, in Casa Grande, Arizona. So I've seen him in person a bunch of times. And now he's with the Houston Dynamo in MLS. Because of some very weird MLS roster rule that I do not claim to understand, he is not eligible to play in MLS yet, despite being signed by the Dynamo. Something to do with not enough minutes actually training with the Dynamo. I have no idea what's going on there, genuinely. He has played in some U.S. Open Cup games, though, and has looked, I think, exactly as I described him. Technical, fun to watch, and, and yeah, Reigns is worth mentioning just because he is maybe one of the most mls MLS players, simply because of how Houston acquired him and still can't play him of all time. I'm still reeling from his name being Brooklyn Reigns. That is pretty good, huh? Pretty badass. It also immediately yeah. makes me think of him being the cousin of Nicolas Cage's character from Gone in 60 Seconds, Memphis Reigns. Memphis Reigns. And I was Brooklyn definitely Reigns. thinking that too. Yeah, of course. Yep, I, I, I assumed that as well. I assumed. Yeah. It sounds like a wrestler name to me. Oh. Yeah. Yeah, that's a good one too. Isn't there? A, isn't there a wrestler with the last name? Re- well, I'm sure it's not his real name. Reigns. I feel like there is somewhere. I, don't I think know, you're whatever. right. I think you're right. Um, and 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 Joe, I had I had a couple of those names. Uh, certainly not all of them. I do think people, if they want to learn more about exciting like teenagers who could be the next big thing, really the Concacaf uh, U20 Championship right now is a, is a good spot to go. The U.S. winning their game against Costa Rica last night, though it seems like the brawl at full time is the thing that's getting most of the attention. Uh, and I enjoy a lot of people. The discourse tends to have been. Um, like, this is a disgrace. Costa Rica should be banned. This is so frustrating, blah, 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 blah. And then the, the immediate comment to that is always like, first time in CONCACAF, huh? Because that's just how these things go. But there's so much talent in that team. Joe, that was where I was sort of confused, though, is like, is an 18, is a 19-year-old, can they be the next big thing? Can it be Cade Cowell? Can it be Caden Clark? Uh, but there, there's so much excitement in that squad. One I had for you. Joe, is what, what were your thoughts on Quinn Sullivan? Because that's heavily influenced by him scoring, I think, five goals in two games at sure. that tournament. But central midfielder for the Union, for those who are unfamiliar, 28 appearances so far for the senior team. Uh, how excited should we be about him? I don't know, Taylor, to be honest with you. I don't really have a great read on Quinn Sullivan, not because I haven't watched him, but just because he's kind of been a player without a a set position for the Union. You mentioned central midfielder. He's also played as part of the front two for Jim Curtin in their 4-4-2 diamond. He's kind of played a a few different places and doesn't seem to have a defined role. And he, to my eye at least, other than maybe scoring an occasional banger, doesn't look like he has a super, like one super positive skill set where he is just really good at that one thing. Like I mentioned with uh, Aronson, Paxton Aronson, he's creative and and really smooth on the ball. And, And Quinn Sullivan has some of that, but not to Paxton Aronson's level, and he's not crazy physical like like Caleb Wiley, even though they play vastly different positions. So I don't quite know what to make of Quinn Sullivan yet, but being pretty darn good at everything isn't the worst thing for a young player. And then one more for me, Joe. Uh, we're just going to keep this going. It becomes Joe talks to, or Taylor talks to Joe about homegrowns. <laughs> um, I was reading about Toronto recently, I think when, before we did yep. our MLS show last week, and about how Bob Bradley is experimenting quite a bit, and that includes playing a lot of youngsters. Uh, I don't know how much of them you've been able to see, but are there any youngsters for Toronto that stood out? There's uh, Jaden Nelson, 19-year-old left midfielder. There's Cozy Thompson, 19-year-old right back. And there's uh, Ralph Priso Mbongue, uh, uh 19-year-old central midfielder. And I apologize if I butchered his name. No, you're you're good. And I want to add one more because the one that you didn't mention is actually the one that was yeah, that on my list, out. but I just felt like I was talking for a long time. So I left out the Canadian. Sorry, Canada. But Jaquil Marshall Ruddy, who is 17. He's a, a right back. I think he's he's typically played higher up the field in the youth ranks, but he is really highly regarded. Tom Bogert's been reporting for a while now that certainly before the injury, teams were very interested in him in Toronto or holding on hoping for you know another hand another few million dollars out of any potential transfer but he is technical he's comfortable in a few different spaces he's just generally really highly regarded and I don't 
I don't see him as an Alfonso Davies or a Tyler Adams or, or really anywhere in that top tier level of, of prospect. But I do think he can certainly hang with a number of the other players, Taylor, that you and I have mentioned on this homegrown list. He's especially for being as young as he is and involved in a, in a new and exciting Toronto project, even though they're they're just awful to watch right now in terms of their, their ability to play good soccer. Marshall Ruddy is certainly a player to watch, too. Good stuff. Graham, anything to add? I think that was pretty comprehensive. Yeah, John John Tolkien. I don't know where the line is. He's obviously pretty established at this point, but um, I love him and I, uh, I I look to speak about him at every opportunity. Disappointed that the mullet is gone now, but he's he he's had a, a good season so far. I think only a handful of players have played more minutes than him for the Red Bulls this season. He's got a good engine, is good technically. He's got personality, and obviously that Red Bull network gives him a pretty good chance of a European move at some point if he keeps this up so maybe he's slightly more established at 19 years old than than some of the names mentioned already but i am a fan wonderful thank you very much for the question steve we're going to take a very quick break when we come back a couple more looking for an assist with your credit card but can't get a hold of anyone luckily with 24 7 us-based live customer service from discover everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime day or night Yep, you heard it right. You can talk to a real human in customer service any time. Sounds like a real game changer, if you ask me. Make the right call and get the service you deserve with Discover. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. Today's episode is brought to you by our old friends, Mac Weldon. Wouldn't it be nice if we could have things both ways, like a zero-calorie cheeseburger, internet ads in March that weren't just reminders to do your taxes, a dog that never needs walking after midnight when it's cold, a Manchester United that is consistently good instead of their current scattershot approach? Well, we tend to think of clothing as an either-or situation as well. People think looking sharp means starchy Oxfords and stiff chinos rather than effortless comfort. But it's possible to have it both ways. Mack Weldon makes timeless apparel with modern performance fabrics for guys who want to look and feel sharp without sacrificing comfort. From their light-as-air underwear to innovative anti-odor tees and versatile yet comfortable pants, Mack Weldon has a full range of clothes that never go out of style. I got a few things recently, including a long-sleeve polo, which I love, uh, maybe the most comfortable t-shirt, which I also love, and my new favorite sweatpants, the Ace sweatpant. It's exactly what I described above, comfort and versatile, but still stylish. It's the type of sweatpant I can wear to pick up my kids from daycare and not think, I'm now wearing sweatpants in public. The other parents will judge me. Now I just think, judge away, nerds, because you will never be this comfortable unless you're also wearing a pair, in which case, high five. Mack Weldon is not flashy. It's just classic, always in style, and made from the world's most comfortable performance materials. They're designed to fit both your style and the demands of modern life. So get timeless looks with modern comfort from Mack Weldon. Go to MacWeldon.com and get 20% off your first order with promo code TSS. That's M-A-C-K-W-E-L-D-O-N.com, promo code TSS to get 20% off your first order. Thank you to Mack Weldon for sponsoring today's episode. Total Soccer Show, you're listening to our listener questions. Here's one from Pete Johnson. How late in life could someone start playing soccer and still be a successful professional soccer player? I've heard of pro-American football players that didn't start until college, usually coming from other countries and weren't introduced to the sport as kids. Is this an illustration of how much soccer depends on skill and not body type? This is an interesting one, isn't it, Tater? Um, I think I can think of many players who made it to the top of the game late, like Jamie Vardy playing non-league soccer at amateur level until he was 24, for example. But I'd suggest that you do need the basic skills quite early on in life, Tater. Yeah, absolutely. I, I genuinely don't think that you can expect to go pro if you haven't started playing soccer before you're 10 years old. Uh, and, and I think a lot of that has to do, I've talked about this before, but you really can, there's like, there's a thing with the hips. And I think dancing, honestly, is the same thing. Uh, I played soccer. I don't have the hip issue there. Uh, with dancing, I absolutely do. It's just like there's a like a, a rigidity to it that you can see when a person comes late to soccer because they've, if they're American, they've primarily played sports that involve their upper body. It's football or basketball or baseball. It's throwing, it's catching, but you don't have as much use for your feet in the game aside from running and cutting and so i think once you like like add a ball to that and now you have to use your feet it's just there's an awkwardness there that if you don't start playing from a young age i think it's really really hard to overcome and i do think soccer has fewer 
sort of transferable skills to other American sorts sports aside from like maybe place kicker. Uh, but that aside, like I think if you're a good pitcher, chances are you you're going to be a halfway decent quarterback and vice versa because they both involve throwing and vision and spotting opportunities. And but ultimately it's throwing a ball. Um, and I think uh, like soccer, you just don't have as much. Uh, translation. So I think you're right then, Ryan, that maybe there's players who played at lower levels and then caught on or caught form or got the confidence or grew into their legs or whatever it is. But ultimately, I think a lot of those stories are players that have been playing from a really young age and then they just finally had that breakthrough. Whereas I think there are other sports that maybe allow you to come to them later on. Uh, like t- tight end in the NFL, I was talking with some buddies of mine, that seems to be one where there's a pretty big crossover between uh, playing college basketball and then becoming a tight end or playing other sports and then becoming a tight end. But even there, if you look at those players who did that, oftentimes it's they were a standout wide receiver in high school. Then they went and played college basketball and then they went and tried out for the NFL and made a team. So even there, I think there is some sort of background to those kind of sporting crossovers. Is, is Jimmy Graham one of those? Yeah, I think he, I think so. I, the, somebody had that, one of my buddies messaged that one, but I don't know enough about him to say for sure, but that was from a group of friends who know far more about American sports than I do. I think I did an American sports Atta thing. Boy. I'm very Atta proud boy, of myself. Ryan. Thank you. <laughs> um, Graham, I'll add that I think it's not an issue of body type in soccer at all because any body type can really go in any position. You think mm. of Jordan Zakiri and Peter Crouch and Adebayo Akinfenwa. They all have very atypical and very different body types and you can get, Small goalkeepers. Yeah. It doesn't really matter, does it? No, and I definitely, I definitely think that soccer depends more on the technique and the skill over body type. So when I was in school, to to draw an anecdotal um, case study here, when I was in, in school, the two sports that people played were football and rugby. And and rugby, I'd say, is more dependent on body type. And so you would get guys picked up by the rugby team when they were fourteen and fifteen years old who had never played rugby at any point in their life before then and some of them would, would would be really good I can think of a couple of guys who went on to play for Stirling County who are a, a semi-professional team and I'm pretty sure I was pretty close pals with them I'm pretty sure they hadn't played rugby rugby before they were 14 and 15 that that never happened with football obviously you would have an advantage if you were fast or if you were tall and you were a defender or something like that or a centre forward or something like that but that wasn't really how you were picked to, to play for the team. It was whether you could you could actually play. And I think those skills, to echo what Taylor said, I think those skills are embedded from a, a young age and, and that technique and the way you move your, your body, I think that happens at a, a, a young age. Or certainly, at the very least, I think it takes years to get even a base level of, of technique in, in soccer. And I think you can always kind of tell the people that have had that experience from kind of age five till 10 and the people who maybe haven't had that experience. The only the only thing that I'll add, because I agree with everything that's been said so far, the the only example I could find of a player who started very late, who had not, not really ever played soccer as a kid until very late on in their childhood, is Matt Turner, who apparently started playing soccer at 14 years old and now is a professional goalkeeper in the Premier League for Arsenal. That's rare. I, I couldn't find any other examples online. All the, the articles and the listicles I could find were just players that arrived to the top division late, as you said, I believe, Ryan, earlier on in this answer. There aren't a lot of examples, certainly not many publicized examples of players that start late. And I think it's telling that the one who, who I really could find is a goalkeeper, where you can get away with that. To use another anecdotal bit of evidence here, I, I played soccer as a child and then I came back to it very late again in high school after not playing at all in, in the middle portion of my childhood. And I ended up at center back because I could understand the game, but the technical quality really wasn't there. So I could react, but I, I wasn't going to be a super effective midfielder or, or forward and, and really contribute in, in scoring goals. So that, that couldn't happen. But one of the players on our team was uh, had played American football all of his life, and he was extremely good at it. I think he, he was in a household where they really didn't even have a soccer ball being kicked around. It was all football all the time, all American football all the time. And he was an incredible goalkeeper for us, like to the point where he had some potential interest from college teams, but really wasn't good with his feet at all. It was all because of how good he was at stopping shots. And this was after never having played soccer in his life. So I think that anecdotal evidence really does line up with the whole Matt Turner thing of if you do start late, you're going to be limited in some senses with your feet, even if you're this incredible sponge, you can soak up all this information 
but you can still be a really valuable player with your hands. And in soccer, there's only really one spot for that. Joe, you just kind of blew my mind here because I think that's a great shout. I think anytime you can have that kind of specialization, like kicker with uh, the NFL or, yeah, goalkeeper, I think there can probably be a little bit more flexibility. But also... The, the consistent criticism of Matt Turner has been distribution. And that would be the thing that if you're coming late to the game, maybe yeah. you're not quite as confident with some of your long range passing or hitting the ball exactly where you want it to go. So maybe that kind of explains some of that conversation as well. Well, and it's funny, Taylor, because I actually think Matt Turner's distribution, at least until very recently, was kind of masked by his generation. Because if you think about other goalkeepers who are maybe in their mid to late 20s, likely when they were coming up through the youth ranks yeah, or, or even coming yeah. into professional careers early on, no one cared about that, right? Or, or people were just starting to care about that. So for Matt Turner, it really didn't matter until maybe the last four years or five years when people started really honing in on that. So I don't know. I, I, I agree with what you're saying, Taylor, and I, I don't think Turner's distribution was helped by him coming to soccer late, but I also think the timing did him a real solid until kind of more recent history. Joe, all I can think of is the time that I, as the place kicker in college, had to like fill in for like one quick run through of a drill. And they're like, just do this and this and this. And I was like, I have never played football. I don't understand how any of this works. That's what I'm picturing is Matt Turner being like, guys, I thought we all agreed. I could just throw it with my hands and this wouldn't be a problem. Right. Now I have to pass the ball? Oh boy. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you very much, Pete, for that question. We got one final one for this episode from Derek L. Uh, this is a hypothetical, by the way, guys. Netflix recently announced a reality show version of Squid Game. And guess what? You've been selected. If you could choose any three people in the soccer world, that's players, coaches, journalists, anything you want, to be your allies in the Squid Game, who would you choose? Now, I'm going to straight up admit I've never seen it, but I kind of know what the concept is, I suppose. And if I read off the Wikipedia, hundreds of cash-strapped contestants accept an invitation to compete in children's games for a tempting prize, but the stakes are deadly. Um, So I've got my three selected here. I'm glad you... Ryan, I'm glad you clarified that this was hypothetical, because I... I had a sleepless night. I thought we were actually going into Squid Game. No, no, you you can relax. You can relax until Andy okay, Murray starts you. playing. Then you can stop relaxing again. Um, <laughs> I'll, I'll say I, what I don't understand about the question, and before I get to my answers, is are, are the three people I'm choosing on my team, are they percent, potentially surviving ahead of me, or do I want to pick weaker people? Because you don't want to be faster than the bear. You just need to be faster than the other guy, right? So Yeah, I, th- I think they're allies. I, I entered this question. Yeah. I can't believe none of us have seen this show. I was really counting on <laughs> one of you guys having watched it. That really Has makes this difficult. It, no. the four of us. Yeah, no, it's Taylor almost said like we live it in a dystopian hellscape already and don't need to oh. watch a show in which people are killed for money. Yeah. My my understanding is that, Ryan, at least for the scope of this question, there are allies. And so I, I picked the most capable people. Okay. That could really bite me like later on. Yeah, yeah, exactly. So I, I tried to align myself with people I thought who would do well. And if that bites me later on, then oh well. I'm just going right. to die anyway. Well, I've gone down that road anyway. So my three picks are um, I'm going to have a player in N'Golo Kante because I think he's very honorable. I think he's incredibly fit. He's very tenacious. And I ultimately think he will probably sacrifice himself for me because he's super nice. So that's uh, my first bit of my player pick. Uh, I've got to go for a coach in Marcelo Bielsa uh, because I think he would, A, watch Squid Game tapes nonstop for several weeks in advance and get all the insider information. Uh, I think he'd be very good at training me up for the necessary intensity required for the Squid Game, which I once again haven't seen, but I get the gist of. And, you know, he's got a bucket. Maybe that could be a Weckman. He could throw it at something. I think that's uh, uh, Marcel Bielsa is, is my <laughs> second choice. My final choice is Neymar's dad. Um, because at, th- th- from the uh, description there, there is a large cash prize involved. And we know that he'd move hell on earth to get large amounts of money <laughs> by aligning himself with a regime that might be regarded as controversial. So Neymar's dad, Marcel Bielsa, and Golo Kante are on my team. Tater, who did you pick? Uh First of all, that's some solid picking by you. I have gone with, uh, yeah, like teammates that like are with you till the end. Uh, with that in mind, my first pick is Diego Simeone. Uh, I want a wild card that we can use to suss out the threats, who is also seemingly impervious to damage. So the one episode I saw, the motion sensor episode, without spoiling too much, I feel like he would just keep running and would be such a distraction that we would then be able to run to safety because he would sort of take the brunt of that one. Uh, then I've added Maurice Adu, because I think in any sort of team, in any sort of situation like this, there's always the person who hangs back at first and is kind of quiet, kind of reserved, and then they rise to the forefront and become the kind of hero by the end. And Moe Du is a player who, in his playing career, 
was very good, but also underrated at the exact same time. And so I feel like he's going to be the one who like steps to the forefront in the necessary moment and finds a way to make something happen, like subbing on against Slovenia. Uh, and then I think also from his analyst broadcaster side, he's smart, observant, he's quick on his feet when it comes to thinking. So uh, Maurice Adu is in there. And I've added Crystal Dunn, uh, because to have staked a claim in those U.S. women's national teams, you have to have been absolutely ruthless, but also pretty talented. Uh, but then she's very charming and wonderful. We've had her on the show before. So if there's a scenario in which we have to charm our way out of something, we're putting Crystal Dunn first. Uh, and versatility, because as we've seen with her playing left back, even though she's very much uh, a midfielder or attacker, uh, she can make things happen. She can get out there and make things happen, but she can also stay back and be defensive if that's what we need. And then my role is to be the noble and humble leader who heroically sacrifices himself so that Maurice and Crystal Dunn can survive. Oh, that's kind of sad, but sweet. Melancholy, I'll call that. There you go. Very nice. Which feels an appropriate ending to Squid Games 2, the soccering. <laughs> Joe, what did you go with? So I, I've i taken a similar strategy in picking players that I, th- I think are good. Oh, I, I also did pick all players because I, I feel like they are the most equipped to accomplish tax, tasks at a high level. Ryan, although I do love your Bielsa shout, and Taylor, I do like your Simeone shout as well. I went with three different categories of players or players that I think exhibit these qualities, strength, agility, and in general soccer intelligence, which I'm really hoping is going to going to translate to Squid Games 2, the soccering. For strength, I have Adama Traore coming in. I, I looked at the different episodes just online as far as what the different uh, competitions were for Squid Games, and at least one of them was a tug of war. And come on, if I have Adama Traore on my side of the tug of war, that thing is over. So that's one that we can just check right off the list. I have agility up next. I think there are a a couple different sort of agility-based competitions. Kylian Mbappe. He's got speed. He's quick on his feet. He's light on his feet. I want Mbappe involved. And then for general observance in soccer IQ and, and just generally someone who I think sees the game well, if not maybe potentially other aspects of his life, is Luka Modric, uh, who is brilliant to watch, exceptional passer. I'm really hoping that he'll be able to distribute in some way. Maybe there'll be a soccer competition. And if so, I really like Luka Modric on my squad. Oh, I think you might have the winningest team so far, Joe Lowry. Uh, Graham, can you top it? So my first pick would be Luca Della Torre. So he'd bodyguard me like he did <laughs> Christian Pilsic in that match against Panama. He'd take a bullet for his teammate, I think. So uh, I'd, I'd quite like him on my t- my team. The thing I like about Della Torre's bodyguarding technique is his calmness. So you get players who stick up for their teammates. I always remember when Ronaldo played for Man United in his first spell there. And Nani would always stick up for his mate. But he'd do it in this way where he'd go steaming in, he'd pick up a booking. And in the end, I'm not sure he did much to protect Ronaldo or actually help the situation. Whereas Della Torre just has that blank expression. He's always scanning for trouble and he just snuffs it out. So I'd, I'd want him to have my back. I'd also want uh, David De Gea. And the reason I'd want him is I'm thinking of that motion detection game that you were talking about, Taylor, where you have to stay really still. And anyone who has ever seen David De Gea attempt to save a penalty kick knows why I have picked him here. He barely moves when facing a penalty, so I think he'd be useful here. And for my final ally, I'm going to stay at Manchester United and I'm going to go for Phil Jones. So if the primary aim of Squid Game is not to die or at least to outlast everyone else around you, then I think Phil Phil Jones knows how to do this. I can't believe that he's still at Manchester United. I can't believe that he has survived this long. So that's my three. De La Torre, De Gea and Phil Jones. Wow. You've just reminded me that Phil Jones is still at Man United. Wow. Right? Exactly. They might even, if, if Phil Jones was one of my allies, they might even forget I'm still in the game. <laughs> Good choices, guys. Good choices. If, if I had to make some picks, by the way, anyone got any suggestions? If, you, if it was every man for himself and you had to pick people you could survive over? Because I would suggest that in all of our picks, we are all respectively the weakest links oh, in those sure. teams. For yeah, sure. For sure. I was wondering if anyone would pick, as Derek's question says, a journalist as an ally. I'm not entirely sure what they're bringing to the table in the Squid Game. That's those are the people we have the best chance of beating, hands down. Any any non professional, uh, any non former <laughs> professional player in the journalism yeah, world, I, mean, I I'll, I'll back myself at least relative to other people I mean, I'd come up against. Have you seen how long Grant Wall rose for? I'm not sure I would back myself against oh. Grant in any sort of Squid Game scenario. You, you know which yeah. uh, uh, soccer podcast host I may I might back myself against in a foot race? Maybe they've proven themselves on video that in a foot race, maybe they don't always. <laughs> All right, we're done now. <laughs> Sh- show's over. <laughs> 
Derek, thank you very much for the question. Thank you for everybody who submitted their questions today. If you have one, totalshocker.com, total, total shocker show, totalsoccershow.com slash rattled. He's rattled. Uh, to submit your side. I've been thoroughly rattled <laughs> by gone. that last comment. The head has gone indeed. Uh, thank you very much, Joseph Lowry. You got it right. <laughs> Graham Ruffin, thank you so much. Thank you, Ryan Bailey. I'm definitely going to look out that video again now when we when we finish. Thanks, Tater Rockwell. My pleasure, buddy. My pleasure. And listener, thank you for joining us once again on this intrepid journey. We'll be back on the feed shortly, but for now, bye. As you've probably heard by now, we've teamed up with BetMGM this season. We'll be using BetMGM lines to make all of our picks, and we'll have special offers for our listeners each week. If you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC, and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic, plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager with BetMGM. Here's how it works. Download the BetMGM app and sign up using bonus code THEATHLETIC. Make your first deposit of at least $10, place your first bet on any game, and claim your voucher for a one-year subscription to The Athletic. See BetMGM.com for terms. U.S. promotional offers not available in D.C., Mississippi, New York, Nevada, Ontario, or Puerto Rico. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Available in the U.S. Call 877-8-HOPE-NY or text HOPE-NY 467-369 in New York. Call 1-800-NEXT-STEP in Arizona. 1-800-327-5050 in Massachusetts. 1-800-BETS-OFF in Iowa. 1-800-270-7117 for confidential help in Michigan. 1-800-981-0023 in Puerto Rico. First bet offer for new customers only in partnership with Kansas Crossing Casino and Hotel. Don't forget, if you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager.